today we're going to continue in our series, We Believe, and we're going to talk about an ordinance of the church, um, but before we do that, I really just had some introductory thoughts that I wanted to give you as we start to dive into today's message um, that really regard our spiritual journey. Now, what you hear in the world today, uh, if you were to believe any of the we used to call them new age. I don't even know what the term is now for them. Uh, but the people who are like, you've got the answer inside of you. All you need to do is find some inner peace. Zen. You need to meditate, spend some time. I, trust me, I don't need any more time with my thoughts. I need God to help redeem my thoughts. Amen. And to help me. So th- that being said, and my wife said, yes, that's true of him. Uh, no, that being true, um, we are all or should be on a spiritual journey towards maturity. The point is not for you to be, and I love what Amy shared this morning in worship. The point is not for you to be a spectator. The point is for you to be engaged. The point is for you to not just check off the box of, yes, I took my wife to church on Sunday. But the point is for you to actually learn and grow and live and move. And the Bible says, have your being in Christ Jesus. So through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the New Testament writers continually encourage your growth. Every time they wrote letters to a church, whether it was Paul, Timothy, John, any of those people, the disciples who gave the accounts, they encouraged individual spiritual maturity. And you know what? I've dealt with, and Paul dealt with them too, and maybe you've met a couple of people who should be spiritually mature because they've been in this thing a long time, but they act like a baby. Have you ever met anybody like that? Don't look around the room. Just raise your hand. Have you? <laughs> We've all met one of those. But listen to some of the phrases that appear in the New Testament. Grow up in Christ. Leave elementary things behind. Let Christ be formed in you. Press on toward maturity. Do not remain children, but mature And grow up in all aspects of your relationship with Christ. So God has called us out of deep darkness into his marvelous light. And he's done so for a purpose. And that purpose is for his own glory. But it's also for your benefit. And he didn't save you just to give you some fire insurance. Amen. He saved you so that he could form in you the character of his son And call you a child of God. So our spiritual journey towards maturity should not include self-help books and meditation, unless it's on the word of God. But it includes things that I call acts and disciplines. So everyone's spiritual maturity includes these things. And I want to give you just a couple of them before we dive into the meat of today. Because it's really going to help you understand where we're headed. So let me give you two examples of some acts that we can do, which are up on the screen for you, that demonstrate your spiritual maturity, your growth. The first step, the starting point of anyone's spiritual journey is hearing the message that Jesus Christ is the Savior and understanding their need for salvation and committing themselves to him, believing that he can save and allowing him to be Lord. That's the first act on your spiritual journey. It's the first step that you take. Then 
the second step that you take is the act of water baptism. Not to embarrass anybody or criticize, but will you just raise your hand proudly if you've ever been water baptized? Come on, that's a lot of us. Good deal. That is awesome. So these are some acts that help us demonstrate our walk or our journey towards spiritual maturity. So we know these things to be true. Water baptism specifically, we'll talk about a little bit more today. It's symbolic and it's significant. Its origin dates back to the first days of Judaism thousands of years ago. We'll talk about it more in just a minute. But our spiritual journey includes also disciplines. And I want to give you two examples of some disciplines or regular practices that assist you on your journey towards spiritual maturity. And here they are, just two of them. The first one, very, very important and primary, is reading and studying God's word. If you're tired of hearing that, I'm sorry, but I know that most of us probably skipped a day this week and we need the reminder regularly to read and study God's word. Not just to read it, and you've heard me talk about it in the idea of um, Bible roulette, okay? You don't just open it and flip to a page and put, pick a verse, and that's my verse, my promise for the day. Well, Methuselah begot so-and-so is not going to be helpful for your day. So reading through the Bible methodically and studying God's word is important. It's a discipline towards maturity. Another example, and I could give you 10, a dozen, more than that, of what disciplines are that have to be practiced. I'll give you one not on the screen. Uh, forgiveness. The Bible says that Christians, hello, should be the most forgiving people. I met some really bitter Christians who are holding grudges for a long, 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 long time. So that's a discipline, but we're not talking about that. It's not on the screen. Let's talk about church attendance. And you're here today, so this is not for you because you're in the room. That's good. I'm glad. But listen to me. It's a regular pattern or a regular discipline that needs to be instituted in your life as a believer. You say, well, pastor, are you doing that because you need a a full room so the crowd feels good and excited? No. Are you doing that so you can get a, a full offering that day? No. I'm saying it because it's actually in God's word that we should not forsake the gathering together of those who are the saints. Why? Because what ends up happening is when I'm together with you, I'm encouraged. I'm built up. I hear correction through the word of God. I hear impartation into my own life. I receive prayer. There are so many benefits for us to join together. And the, the writer of Hebrews actually warns, instructs the readers not to neglect the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. And here's the thing. I would tell you very boldly, not you, but the people who don't aren't here, you know, not listening today. I would say this. You cannot say that you are a mature Christian and not regularly be in church. You just can't do it. There is not a way to do that. And I say regular, it used to be three times a week in life and modern times and all the things have changed and there's challenges and work schedules and children and custody and I get it, I get it. But I say this, 
when the doors were open, I was there growing up and not just because my parents were in ministry, but because they loved Jesus and they wanted to raise me that way. And I'm doing the same with my children. So I say, let's make sure that God is a priority and the meeting of his people are, because that's what ends up happening. If we treat church attendance as optional, the next generation will treat God as optional. And I'm pretty sure you already see evidence of that in this world. So it, it's, it's something that we've got to discipline ourselves. Listen, do you think I wake up every Sunday morning excited to be here? <laughs> yes, I should. Pastor, that's what we pay you for. No. Listen, I was at a daddy-daughter dance last night, an elementary daddy-daughter dance with Brighton, who's serving in the nursery this morning. Um, and uh, they started playing a song uh, easy like Sunday morning. Okay. It's, it's not a sanctified song by any means. We were sitting down cause she was so tired from dancing the night away. We were sitting down at one of the tables and, um, I just looked at her and I said, you know what this song is, is saying? And she said, yeah, it says easy like Sunday morning. And she said, but daddy, our, our, our Sunday mornings are not easy. <laughs> and I said, no, they're not. Okay. But maybe Saturday we could sing like Saturday mornings are easy because that's just different. Here's the, here's the point of what I'm trying to say. When you prioritize the joining and gathering together of the saints, you walk away sometimes having a dud. Sometimes you might not have some heebie-jeebie woohoo feeling when you walk out of here. But most times you'll leave encouraged, enriched, enlightened, blessed, challenged, loved on. That's a good thing. So the title of today's message, as we talk through some of the acts and disciplines of a believer's life, is that we believe in water baptism by immersion. The, the word baptism essentially means to be immersed or dipped or even submerged. So it means to actually be pushed under. So the reason why we talk about this, and I want you to understand, if you've been in our church for any single Sunday I've ever preached, I hope that you can testify to this. We try to not lay out some sort of harsh judgment towards people who believe in a different form of Christianity, like the different pattern of Christianity. So there are some who don't believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I love those people. I want them to experience the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I will join hands with them and pray with them. I will go to community faith events with those people who believe in the same Christ as I do. So today, if you're here and you were not immersed when you got baptized, you were sprinkled on as a baby, I'm not passing judgment on you. I just want to help you understand what we believe according to God's word when it comes to baptism. And maybe it'll be something that's enlightening to you. Some of you might be like, well, I've heard a message on this before. Are we having a water baptism today? I have not cleaned the tank. <laughs> but we can, and we will set it up anytime. Uh, some people have asked me, well, Pastor, this is kind of like a non-traditional building with a non-traditional space. Like, where do you baptize people? It's on wheels. It comes out of a room, and we 
clean it out and we put warmish water in it and we roll it up here and we baptize you. Um, some of you have had the privilege of being baptized here and I'm thankful for that. But the New Testament speaks of several baptisms and the one we'll focus on today is water baptism. You know, there are things in scripture that follow a pattern and it's what I like to call a design pattern. You see it repeated over and over and over and over again. This is why it's so important to pay attention when you read the Bible. Because what a design pattern is, is it's individual stories throughout both the Old and the New Testament. And they've been divinely coordinated. I want you to listen to me clearly today. Matthew never met Moses... (laughs) Okay, they've met now. But Matthew, during his life on earth, had not met Moses, yet they wrote things that had similar themes with repeated words and phrases. There's something divinely coordinated by God to help us see a pattern in Scripture. And there's dozens of them. But I want to show you today the design pattern of water baptism in Scripture. So if you're taking notes, you'll see some references on the screen, several chapters of scripture. Genesis chapter one, in Genesis chapter one, God brings humanity through chaotic waters, I want you to listen, into a new world. He divides the water, he separates the waters, the Bible says, and separates them and dry land emerges as a home for his new creation humans to flourish. Then quite a lot happens between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6, but then by the time Genesis 6 rolls around, it's the story of the flood. God saw the wickedness of mankind, and he decided to purge the wickedness that he saw on the, on the earth and destroy and rebuild creation, and he chose a single family. The Bible says... To take them through the waters, and New Testament writers say through the waters of salvation, so that they could step onto dry land and begin again. Humanity, if you want to call it version 2.0. Okay. This was like the good, a good restart. The Bible says in Genesis 6 that the world was exceedingly wicked and there was extreme violence on the earth. Aren't you glad he's promised to not flood the earth again? Because we're enduring some of that very stuff even today. The pattern then repeats in Exodus chapter 14. When God himself leads the people out of captivity in Egypt, he does so miraculously through the waters, the Bible says, of a sea on dry ground. Not wet, not muddy, dry ground. And then as soon as God's people have been saved... Pharaoh and his armies are destroyed, and God starts the journey with his people through the wilderness to get them to the promised land. Then here it is, 40 years pass, come and go, and Joshua chapter 3, Joshua is leading, now Moses has died, and Joshua is leading the people into the promised land, and they come to an obstacle of water. The Bible says it was the Jordan River. They're brought to the bank of the Jordan River in order to cross over into the land geographically that God has promised them 
to possess. And they passed through the waters of the Jordan River and it was dry as a bone. It literally has imagery, which I, I love to imagine, you know, as you're reading through scripture, try to put yourself in the picture. And it literally says, and the water stood up and stayed put and past them. They kept flowing down that way, but they left giant, a giant space. God left a giant space of dry ground for the people of Israel to go through on. It's amazing when you think about the different instances of this repeated pattern. Then 700 years pass. The people of Israel have journeyed. They've, ha- they've gotten to the land, but then they've sinned and they've not repented. God sent judgment against them. They've been held captive now. They've been taken away to these various places. And then the prophet Isaiah shows up and he begins to prophesy something with a glimmer of hope for the future about a new exodus that will happen. And in the future, that chaos of captivity will be dissipated. The enemy nations are considered water, if you read Isaiah chapter 7 through 9. And God will lead his people out with a new eternal king. It's amazing. Then another 700 years pass after Isaiah, and the pattern reappears, and it's finalized and fulfilled in Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus, God's only begotten son, gets baptized in what other place, listen to the significance of it, than the Jordan River. He took his people into the promised land. And now the promise has arrived at that same location to be baptized. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. The design pattern is really interesting. Uh, I love studying the Bible and I I want you to love it. Uh, Matthew chapter 3 verse 13, it says this. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him in order, like he was trying to stop him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you've come to me. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Listen to me really quickly. Make sure you pay attention. I know we symbolize the Holy Spirit as a dove. He is not a dove. Okay? Listen to what the Bible says. It says, descending like a dove, coming to rest upon him. And verse 17 says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So again, we've talked about what we believe and we talked about the Trinity and here it is, Jesus in the water, the spirit descending to rest upon him and the voice of the father calling out, this is my boy and I love him. I am pleased with him. So he gets baptized in the Jordan River and his whole purpose for coming to earth was to rescue humanity 
from a dark and dying world and give them hope and a bright future to, to bring us out of the chaos of evil and into life eternal. So Jesus, while here, lived a sinless life. Then he dies. He's crucified. He dies. He's buried and resurrected. And he has now become the greatest victor of all time. Because he's conquered death, hell, and the grave. Amen? And so we have some exciting things to talk about when we talk about baptism because this is why it became such a big deal for Jesus' disciples, his followers then, as well as his followers now, because we get to participate in that ancient pattern and follow the model of Jesus. Not only the model, but also his instruction. There are two necessities for water baptism. I'm giving you theology today, so take some notes. Two necessities. The first is salvation, and the second is water. It's just really, it's that simple. That's all that's needed for water baptism to happen. In fact, conversion, and you'll see in the New Testament, if you were to look up the word baptism or baptize or any of its variants, you'll see 27 different examples in the New Testament of people who the Bible says these words were saved and then baptized. So we believe in immersion, keeping in line with the biblical precedent. Jesus didn't step his big toe into the Jordan River and say, John, would you just throw some water my way? He went down into the river. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says this. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 2 verse 12 says that baptism could be described as a physical manifestation of putting the putting to death the flesh. Look at what it says in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I want to clarify and make sure that you understand something because this is a theological question that people have why did jesus need to be baptized he obviously lived a life that was sinless so he wasn't there to in some versions the bible says get baptized to wash away your sins he didn't have any sins to wash away So he had no impurity to actually demonstrate. He wasn't being baptized because he had made a personal decision to believe in God. He is God. He he was God. He is God. Will always be God. So why did he do it? Matthew actually tells us he did it in order to demonstrate his obedience to the Father's will. And to make it a model for you and I to do it. So that we would see this is the the next step. You say you love me, believe in me, and give me your life. Now take that private decision you've made and go public with it. Tell everybody about it. Look at how Jesus instructs his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. It says this. This is what we call the Great Commission. 
You've heard it frequently. Go and make disciples of all nations. And what does he tell them to do? Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm telling someone here by the Spirit of God who doubts that God is with them, Jesus has promised to be with his children to the end of your age. That's amazing when you think about it. Sometimes we get lost in our thoughts and we might be lonely or fighting depression or thinking different things about God doesn't care about me. God doesn't love me. Why would he even be concerned? I'm here to tell you he has promised to be with you. Amen. So he's telling his disciples then and it continues till today to baptize, go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the father, the son and the Holy Spirit. So water baptism serves several purposes, and I want to give you some of those things. The first is this. It serves as a symbol of our salvation, our obedience, and our loyalty. So it's, it's a symbolic thing. When I, and we tell people in our water baptism class, if you want to get water baptized, we hold a short class and tell you all the details, basically, of my message today, of what God's plan and purpose is. But there's nothing magic in the water. It's, it's a physical act that's a symbol of something that's happened spiritually. In fact, think about it like this, a symbol of our salvation, obedience, and loyalty. I asked my wife years ago, after I got off of a carriage ride in New York City with her, I got down on one knee and I risked it all. She actually said, are you kidding? But anyway, um, and I risked it all and I asked her, would she marry me? That's a big commitment. Will you commit your life to me. So privately, she agreed, yes, I'll, we'll get married. Sure, I'll get married. And then what did we do to have the symbol of that private commitment? We got wedding rings. And we had a ceremony and everybody had a celebration because it was symbolic. Are you following my thinking this morning? It was symbolic of a personal private decision that had already been made. But now we went public with it. And had everybody celebrate. It's the same idea when it comes to water baptism. It's an outward manifestation of an inward transformation. So it's us physically doing something that's spiritually obedient, but it's not mystical, magical, that sort of thing. It is meant for us to physically submit ourselves in a posture that demonstrates death and resurrection Because the one who loves you sent his son to die and be resurrected on your behalf and give you eternal life. Amen? Water baptism also serves as a public declaration of your faith. I remember being in a church um, in my years in college and they had a baptismal service every single week. And there were sometimes that dozens, if not close to 50 or even more than that, people wanted to get baptized in water in that service. It was amazing. 
There were drug addicts that the week before had been using who God had set free completely. And they heard about water baptism and they said, yes, I want to get water baptized. And they were able to talk in a mic and share their testimony of what God did to set them free. And they said, it's because of his love for me that today I am publicly declaring my faith and I am dying to my old self and rising to new life in him. It's powerful. It's a symbol of our unity with Christ and with his church. It serves as a symbol of our unity with Christ and his church. It's awesome to think that there are believers in the Maldives and the Philippines and all over Europe and in South America and in every nation on the continent of Africa. There are believers who have been water baptized into the same faith, having the same faith that you do is amazing. It brings a unity of purpose to us because it's a symbol of that unity with Christ and with his body. It also serves as an act of obedience. We talk about obedience. You think as a parent, it's hard to get your kid to obey. I'm not going to look at you when I say this. What do you think God thinks when he's trying to get you to obey? Right? I mean, he's, he's, and you say, well, pastor, I'm a believer. I'm a seasoned saint. Uh, He's still working on your obedience. That spiritual maturity is to say, you know what, Lord? I disobeyed. Please forgive me. I will obey next time. Or I'll fix it right now. Or whatever the case may be. It's an act of obedience. And there are many of those acts of obedience. Think about other acts of obedience within the church. What are some of the other acts of obedience in your faith, in your journey of spiritual maturity? Serving, giving. There's a lot of them, right? That demonstrate that, you know what? You're the one that tells me what to do. I'm not the one that tells you what to do. Some of us treat our prayer life like that. Shh. I would love to tell God what to do, (laughs) but we shouldn't. We should ask him for his grace and his mercy, ask him for what we know we need, but I know he wants something from us. And that's not just a belief in our heart that believes that he loves us. It's a life of obedience after that. So salvation is by faith and that alone. But the outworking of that faith always results in obedience. So some frequently asked questions, and we'll go through these pretty quickly today. There are frequently asked questions about baptism and water baptism. So we'll talk about that. The first one is this. Can you get rebaptized? Is there anything wrong with that? Um, I've already been water baptized. Can I do it again? Yes, you absolutely may. There is no prohibition in scripture about being rebaptized. I will say this to the other side, just because I've studied it very well. There's also no example of being rebaptized. So with the absence of evidence, there's a single one who was baptized by John and hadn't yet found out about Christ. And then he hears about Christ and then gets rebaptized. There's only one of those examples in all of the scripture. 
But there's no pre- prohibition about getting rebaptized. In fact, I told you about the time that I gave my heart and truly dedicated my life to the Lord as a teenager after having done so as a child and not really cared, not really treated it seriously, didn't really live for God the way I should have. And then when I did, I said, I need to be rebaptized again. And I got rebaptized in a beautiful pool in the summer. It was great. <laughs> Um, so getting rebaptized, there's nothing wrong with that according to scripture. There's no prohibition about it. Okay. So if you want to get rebaptized after you've made a decision for faith, you know, you say maybe you've walked away from the Lord and you're back and all of those things. That's up to you. Um, the second frequently asked question is this. If I was baptized by sprinkling, do I need to be rebaptized by immersion? Like, can, do I need to do it right this time, pastor? Like you're talking about, <laughs> here's what I think. Here's my answer. It's a matter of conscience and conviction. I've met plenty of people who were baptized a certain way and they don't have the conviction. Even though they've read, they've studied about it, they don't have that personal conviction. The Holy Spirit hasn't helped them with whatever yet. So we don't push that. I'm not pushing that on you. I'm not saying God's not gonna count it. In fact, let me tell it to you like this. I don't think in the scope of God's grace that you show up to the judgment seat of Jesus, the judgment of the righteous, and he says, oh wait, you got sprinkled? Mm, Hard pass. And the trap door opens and you go to, no. I don't think that's how that's going to work, okay? I really just don't think in the scope of God's grace that's how that's going to work. So we need to be careful and make sure that we don't heighten something that is so minute or minor and let it be something that divides. My wife talked about, and you may not even know, but there is something of a supernatural move of God happening in Kentucky right now. There are tons of people posting testimonies about it. There are live feeds of their services. There are naysayers who are visiting and the news has even tried to go and, and be there. Like there's, there is something supernatural happening in that place. And here's the thing. You could get all sidetracked and start nitpicking all the little things that you want to, or you can sit there with an open heart and say, God, is this you? We don't have to be divided on little things inside of the doctrine. We must understand that baptism is the natural act of obedience for a believer. That's really what it's all about. So again, like I said, I've got best friends in the Baptist community. I love I'm not going to not have them as friends just because they don't believe a certain piece of doctrine. So that's why I talk about this in the whole idea of sprinkler immersion. Don't be that guy who's like, oh, well, your baptism didn't count because I heard you just got sprinkled. Don't be that guy. Be the person that helps somebody walk through their spiritual journey and study the matter with them. Amen? Immersion was the method that Jesus emulated for us. And Paul and the other church fathers in the early church confirmed this method as well because it represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So um, if you want to get dunked, get dunked again. Or get dunked for the first time. If you got sprinkled and you want to get dunked, I say it plainly like that, we'd be more than happy to do that. Um, I, I love baptism services because there's something so refreshing about people who have made a decision to be water baptized because they've followed Jesus, 
to have friends and family come and be part of their baptism, be in the room, is a very special thing. And it's even a moment where others can be captured by God's grace. I think there's a reason that God still wants us to be water baptized. Here's another question that's asked all the time. Do I have to be water baptized in order to go to heaven? Is it necessary for eternal life? And I would say no. It's not. But if you've been saved and you're not yet physically dead, there's no reason to delay your obedience. Right? Like, I mean, we could put it off a week because I don't have the tank today and water in it. I get it. That's fine. But the point is this. You don't need to be water baptized in order to get into heaven. But why delay your obedience any longer if you haven't been? This is important theology. And I'm not telling you say, well, pastor, I've already been water baptized. I'm familiar. I know Jesus got baptized. I got to I got it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to do what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. As you are making disciples in the world, you got to lead them in the way of understanding the truth of God's word and say, this is how you make a decision of faith. And this is what your next step on the journey is. Amen. It's important. Again, the thief on the cross is a good example. He didn't have time to tithe. He didn't sign up for kids ministry that day. He didn't go get water baptized. Jesus said, you believe in me and I'll see you later today. That's amazing. Here's another question. Some churches practice infant baptism. So where do we as a church stand? I'll put it to you like this. There is no biblical evidence whatsoever or precedent for infant baptism. If you're interested in me nerding out, I can. And I'll tell you all about John Calvin and covenant theology and how he got to the point of understanding that a family comes in as a family to God and how they started the practice of infant baptism in several different streams of theology. But I won't do that today. I'll just simply tell you there really truly is no biblical evidence or precedent for infant baptism. Pastor, does that make me a sinner because I got baptized? No, it doesn't make you are a sinner. Let me just put it to you that way. But you're not a sinner because you got sprinkled as a child. Okay, there is no biblical evidence for this. So the two biblical necessities for water baptism are believing faith in Jesus, right? And water. Have you ever met an infant that could believe in God? (laughs) That could tell you? That Jesus saved them and set them free? <laughs> no, I've never met an infant like that. I've had, I've had a couple of them. Um, they can't yet believe because they're not mentally mature enough to, uh, to understand and to, to really comprehend. We do, we do water baptism for children once they've demonstrated that they understand what Jesus Christ has done for them. We're fine to do that. In your family, that might be for your one child at eight and it might be for another child at twelve. I'm not setting a number on that, but I'm telling you, you've got to have a knowledge of who God is in order to experience redemption and know that you need to be redeemed. So what do we believe or where do we stand on this? I think you're familiar with it uh, right now, as I've told you, but I will say this as a placeholder to some degree um, for something similar, but not the same. 
we practice something here called baby dedication, which we could just probably call parent dedication because the baby just goo, goo, ga, ga the whole service and has no idea what's going on. But the whole point of doing a baby dedication, which there is biblical evidence for, think of Samuel being brought and dedicated. Think of Jesus. I'm telling you, there's patterns in the Bible. Jesus being presented before the priest. When Hannah brings her son Samuel to dedicate him to the Lord, she dedicated, she gave. Hello, is anybody listening with their spiritual ears? She gave her only begotten son right then and there to the service and purpose of God. That's amazing. So we, we practice baby dedication, and it's a moment where parents and family can join together. And basically, it's a challenge to the parents and to the family, as well as to the church family, that they'll commit to raising that child in the fear of the Lord, raising that child in the Christian faith. There's no, there's no salvation. There's no divine act of grace in the ceremony. There's some simple prayers that are offered and a prayer of blessing over the child that one day they will come to know Jesus and serve God. So that's what we practice as it regards infants or toddlers, children, as the case may be. Last question is this. When should I be baptized? What do you think? That's the answer. I paid my wife extra today so she would say that. As soon as possible after salvation. As soon as possible after salvation. Um, I don't want you to feel guilty if you haven't been water baptized, but you made a declaration of faith and you've been living for the Lord for several years and you just maybe haven't gotten around to it. I'm not here to deliver a big dish of guilt to you. What I'm here to deliver is an opportunity I'm here to offer you a opportunity to say, yes, I want to be water baptized. And also for you to understand our theology behind it so that um, you really truly can lead someone to a living faith. That's the real point. It's not just my job. It's all of our job, right? One other question, which I hesitate to get into because it's a little bit of a muddied place. We can talk about it later. You may be of a faith tradition or have heard of people that say something about your baptism is not legitimate if they did it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It should have been in Jesus' name only. Let me just tell you, Jesus' words in Matthew 28, God himself speaking to humans here on earth said, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. There are other places in the New Testament where the apostles are trying to help people understand that you don't need to just get baptized by John for repentance in that fashion. You need to be baptized into Christ And so there's wording that some people twist and then they just kind of run off on a rabbit trail with. So we believe in baptism as it regards that to be dunked. And we don't even do it three times. There are churches that do it in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son. And you're going, I'm drowning in the name of the Spirit. You know, it's really interesting. You can look at pictures too of old baptismal fonts and things. Um, 
Because there is this idea, because of that design pattern in Scripture, that water baptism is an act of spiritual warfare. The baptismal fonts used to carry hideous carvings of Satan being trampled on and all of his demons being trampled on. It was imagery to help communicate that this person has now been rescued literally out of the grip of hell and brought into marvelous light. It's amazing when you think about it. So are you glad that you've been water baptized? Somebody shout amen. Okay, and if you need to get water baptized, let us know. We will do it anytime. We don't have to have a, you know, six people to sign up. Uh, we'll wash the tank and do it for a single person. We'll do it for children if you're comfortable and you believe they've made a decision for faith. We, we want you to be able to obey. That's what we want you to do. Would you stand with me today?